Hello, and welcome back to Resonant Reels, the audio podcast where we talk about movies and television in an audio lens. I'm just going to keep throwing the word audio in there because that's been my life, I feel like, and your life for like (laughs) the last couple weeks now. Just being audio people, doing all the audio things. (laughs) All the time. (laughs) I'm Chandler. I'm Adam. Yeah, and this week we we are talking about some Black History films. Yes. Yep. It's February. Busy time for me. Lots of scheduling stuff, and my birthday's coming up, so there's lots going on. Lots going on. Hell yeah, it is. Chandler, God bless him, uh, figured out the craziness, which I don't know if, uh, you know, in edit if it was taken out yet or not. Um, But we were having a really fun experience last week where I had to get a new laptop. And all of a sudden, in the middle of us recording, there would just be like random thumbs up and thumbs down bubbles that showed up while I was speaking. Mind you, my hands weren't in the camera at all. Like, I was hands down just talking into the mic and all of a sudden like a thumbs up would pop up and we had to like pause and be like, did you do that? No. Did you do that? No. Oh, what happened? And neither of us could figure it out. Um, and today Chandler told me he went down a Reddit loophole and figured out what it was. And it's these new Mac iOS updates uh, that apparently like trigger just different effects so he was like i'm gonna blow your mind do you like the rock on hands i'm gonna do it again does it work of course it doesn't work when i want it to <laughs> uh but like all of a sudden my screen oh there it there goes go. has like there these like multicolored lasers and fog come up comes up in the background and uh it was pretty sick so I still don't know why we had thumbs ups and thumbs downs when my hands weren't in the screen, but at least now we know that uh, it's it's the it's the laptop. Yeah, it's the AI training. It's it's learning. The AI is like trying to figure things out, struggling a little bit. Come to our four hour episode about AI. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have. Yeah, yeah. It's a com. It's a complicated, complicated conversation. It's a complicated relationship that I have. Absolutely. Anyways. That's what I do with some of my free time when I don't sleep because uh, insomnia is a thing for me. So it happens. And sometimes I'm productive. Sometimes I'm not. And that's, yeah, I go on these Reddit bunny trails or a movie bunny trail or just nonsense. Like this is this is where I get all the weird movie ideas, as we've clearly now met with me with Phantom of the Paradise as, <laughs> as just a calling card of how weird I am of a person. I promised an update from two things, actually. One is kind of sad. One is a something I said I would talk about. When I saw the Mean Girls movie, I said I would I would give my, my official two cents. Um, and my official two cents is, I think it was a perfectly fine movie. However, I absolutely do see that they tried to like scale it down from being what a musical is is which is this outlandish thing to begin with and in doing so made some wild editing choices um i didn't like a lot of the orchestrations but what i will say absolute best part of the film is the song someone gets hurt holy crap first of all i did come clean to daria that my celebrity crush is renee rap uh r.i.p me um <laughs> wow but she sings that song and it's 
perfect. But the the lighting, the the orchestration for that song, I actually very much enjoyed. I thought it fit very well with the film, the choreography, like all of that entire like two minutes and 30 seconds. Absolutely stellar. Uh, if you have no desire to see this movie, you should at least look up the the video which exists online already of course uh clip from someone gets hurt very very good you'll probably have no idea what's happening or but like uh but just as a visual auditory thing it's good and then my my sad piece of news on the heels of our musical movie episode is that cheetah rivera passed away when we're recording this uh she passed away yesterday and so we actually uh dedicated our show last night to cheetah rivera our conductor um went on the mic at the top of show and said you know some sweet words so she was 91 and uh she she passed yesterday so uh uh, a hit to the broadway world um but also the chicago family um specifically as well so yeah now back to what we're actually talking about those are our updates i just gotta bring it down and we're we're gonna keep keep going going down down now uh yeah yeah so this this will be a heavy hitting episode i imagine since it's black history themed and specifically in america i think we you know we're doing it very much in an american lens of black history yes good point we'll be having a lot to discuss but but we're gonna start with adam with his documentary first time we're doing a documentary on this podcast it is and re-watching this i realized how much i love documentaries and i actually watch them a lot they're not very diverse, to be honest. A lot of the documentaries I watch are surrounding like cults and true crime and things like that. Uh, <laughs> so, um, but uh, arguably, the American prison system is a cult. So uh, here we are. Hot takes, hot takes all around. Yeah, hot takes already coming in. I do, I do want to preface. I, I do acknowledge that we are passing white men in the society with our privilege. I do want to preface with that. Absolutely. Yeah. I understand the privilege that we can have in our society because honestly, history and and especially since we're arguably repeating history right now in America, that nothing bad will happen to us. And that is just going to be the honest truth because we are passing white men. The movie uh, documentary that I I picked for uh, Black History Month um, is 13th, and it was directed by Ava DuVernay. Its its official U.S. release um, was in October of 2016, and I actually don't think I realized how quote-unquote recent this movie is because as Chandler and I were talking prior to hitting record, this is now technically considered like old uh for a documentary uh as being eight years ago you know a little less than eight years but yeah the first time i saw this i did not actually watch it in its entirety it was for a class in college um the course title was race and ethnic relations and it was like a a race and gender studies course um that i was taking as an elective the teacher professor college is weird i don't remember what we called people she had us watch sections of it in class um because she did not assume that everybody had netflix which i appreciated uh we would we spent probably like i had this class two or three times a week i think and and we spent probably about 
a week watching it, which it's only uh, its runtime is a uh, hundred minutes, so you can imagine it wasn't very hard to watch the bulk of it. But we did not watch any of the parts that made me realize that like tw- it was relevant to that year, like of 2016, included um, you know footage of Trump and all of that sort of stuff. Like I didn't necessarily think this was some old documentary, but I didn't realize that it was like that year relevant in terms of everything. So going back and watching it in its entirety this time, um, I was like, oh, like this got released at a really, really good time uh, for people to like watch. And one of the things that I I saw was that it it had a surge when it initially came out and its second surge in viewership by, and this was the statistic, 4,665%. That is how much viewership increased in June of 2020 during the George Floyd protests. That number is just astronomical, like over four and a half thousand percent increase of people who who watched this um, documentary. And I, I am grateful that Netflix kept it on and it did not go away because uh, I, I think that this is a very important documentary to watch. And uh, DuVernay even said herself that like after watching this, nobody has the excuse anymore to be like, now you can't say like, oh, I didn't know about that. Or like, oh, that's horrible. I had no idea. It's like the information's out there. You can see it. And once you do, you you have an idea. You no longer get that, you know, ignorance. The cool thing about 13th is now I've realized, at least in the US, it's on YouTube for free. So you can oh, watch sick. the whole thing on YouTube. It's on the Netflix YouTube channel, and you can find the whole documentary there. That's how I watched it this time because all of my screens were used up in my family account. So uh, heard, <laughs> but it worked. It was like it was great. Like every nothing's cut out for YouTube. It's all there. So that's like that's awesome. Great, more access for more information for more more people for more power. Power to the people. Hell yeah, that's great. I love that. So to dive in about the movie itself. It is called 13th because it is uh, a direct reference to the 13th Amendment um, in the United States Constitution. I will read the specific verbiage um, of what the 13th Amendment in the United States Constitution is and why that's relevant to this documentary. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction, which is fancy language to say that like slavery has been abolished unless you are a convicted felon. That is considered the loophole uh, of the 13th Amendment specifically um, as it relates to uh, race. Because our movie starts off with, uh, it's actually Barack Obama um, stating that, um, and and a lot of these are direct quotes uh, from the film because, um, again, it's a documentary and the bulk of this documentary is just factual information. Um, It's not really people giving much of an opinion. They are quotes and statistics and things like that. So the U.S., has 5% of the entire world's population, um, but the U.S. is 25% of the world's prisoners. And the U.S. has the highest rate of incarceration in the world. Um, and that is kind of how we open uh, the the documentary, is like being thrown that statistic right away. The documentary basically takes place post-slavery, like initially. Slavery 
goes away. And all of a sudden now we have an, an entire, I can't even necessarily say country, but definitely like very large economic region that has no labor force. And everybody kind of scrambled, obviously, to figure out, well, how do we fix that? Quote, unquote, fix, obviously, uh, because these are very evil solutions to very evil problems. The prison system became the solution to that. Essentially, what wound up happening, especially in the South, because that, that language from the 13th Amendment became a tool of the, you know, unless convicted um, for a crime. Being a black person, basically that identity became synonymous with with being a criminal. Um, and all of that was done like very intentionally. The laws, the media, literally everything about white society started portraying um, black individuals as threats to that white society. Essentially, we had Jim Crow, and now this the 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 you know nickname for for all of this stuff was like the new Jim Crow. Um, it it became the societal norm. This was really like the first thing that we kind of get thrown at is you know African Americans started getting arrested and imprisoned in mass for incredibly minor crimes, like and sometimes most often like fabricated crimes or things that were like thrown upon them just so that they could then be arrested. Then those people were taken to prison and then they were now the labor to rebuild the economy in the South after the Civil War. Therefore, slavery still exists. Uh, it's still happening. It's just been accessed through this loophole. There are a couple of things that get talked about. Um, one of the things is the 1915 film, uh, The Birth of a Nation, um, where there are actually clips of this movie throughout the documentary. Um, and it's very uncomfortable. The, the subject matter obviously is, uh, is uncomfortable, um, but also having to watch someone in blackface repeatedly throughout the film and 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 that's intentional right like we're 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 supposed to be uncomfortable as a as a white audience that is that is the intention it's like hey listen up you need to know these things um and so and so it was a, it was obviously an uncomfortability that like I expected that I was that I that I I was there for something I learned about the movie The Birth of a Nation. It was actually originally called The Klansman, which I did not know prior. Um, but one of the the things that was really emphasized in this movie was black men being a unintelligent and b being sexual predators towards white women. And this, uh, this movie was screened, like fully screened in the White House uh, by Woodrow Wilson. It was praised by critics and reviewers. Like this movie was a phenomenon. It actually kind of blew my mind looking into the birth of a nation and, and the reception uh, and, and all of the things that came from that movie. It was honestly cited as like the resurgence, not even the resurgence, but the, the growth, I should say, um, of the Ku Klux Klan. You have the birth of a nation get talked about. And therefore, again, that's why I mentioned media earlier of, of portraying black individuals, specifically black men, as a, as a threat to 
white society. There, there was already this push through the media and public white society, public white society, to reduce people of color as secondary citizens, but to the point of trying to make them animals. Like they viewed them as not people. And that was the narrative that they were actively pushing and arguably still pushing, but finding new ways to do it. And that's, I think, what this documentary really does a clever job of illustrating is showing these initial tactics that the media and the public was doing since Reconstruction when slavery was abolished and we have all these freed slaves and how since then the narrative has just shifted or changed in a clever way to try to devalue these people to make them less than. And that is seen kind of with our our first like big topic um, government wise of of the film um, when talking about Richard Nixon's uh, campaign and his platform and his entire platform was law and order. And this was, you know, when we when we talk about Republican, Democrat, right, left, um, this was kind of cited as the start of the Republican Party as we understand it to be now. The the idea of dog whistle politics, which is like, we're going to spout a bunch of stuff that really has like no leg to stand on, uh, but people are going to like be invested in it, get passionate about it. Um, but it's not like, like the things we're talking about are like not real. Nixon's campaign was actively against, whereas Black liberation, anybody who was anti-war and gay rights. There were there were tons of protests and everything during this period, especially with like the wars going on and, and how anti-war protests were happening, which go hand in hand with, you know, that's a whole other conversation, but go hand in hand with with the black liberation protests and everything. Then we get this idea of the war on drugs, which is with Nixon. It's it's an idea. It's not something that's actually like physically it's not something that's happened in legislature either um it's it is it is purely this just concept at this point the prison system and everything like police started hiding behind this platform and behind the words of law and order and and what did that even mean and it was the response to all of these really rebellious, quote unquote, social movements. Um, And it was like, oh, those people, those people, those people. And it was doing a lot of othering. And it was like, well, us over here, like we're the rule followers. We understand how society works. But look at all of those people breaking the law and getting into drugs and all of this stuff. Yeah, because I would argue that narrative shifted that way, especially under the Nixon era, because federal agencies and state agencies were losing the public opinion because people were like, no, maybe the people of the counterculture movement are right. Like these people are just fighting for their rights because we literally had the FBI being led by J. Edgar Hoover determining that the Black Panther Party is a terrorist organization, but the KKK is not. Literally targeting people in charge of these movements and killing them assassinating them like fbi did a hit jobs on people i think the other and and the the other part of this too 
which I'll, I, I have a quote that I will be reading in a second, but with, um, you know, the anti-war movement, because um, obviously this is this is in the time of the Vietnam War and the draft and all of that. So you also have a bunch of people who did not want to obviously be going to war, but you also had a bunch of young men who were like, this is my country, like this is what I'm supposed to do. And the the media, even with that, um, in in Nixon's campaign and and things showing pictures and and whatnot of soldiers, army soldiers coming back from the war and getting spit on uh, in uh, you know airports and bus stops and things like that. Um, and so they are showing these. They're they're being very specific about what they you know are highlighting. And there was an advisor in Nixon's administration, um, whose name is John Ehrlichman, I believe. I'm going to, I'm going to go with that. It's spelled E-H-R-L-I-C-H-M-A-N in case anybody wants to look it up because this guy should be on blast forever. And I mean, he's probably dead if I'm being honest, but the legacy should be one that is looked down upon horribly. And he has a quote and actually he even says in this, uh, interview conversation whatever he's like now you can't you can't put me on record for this and they're like no 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 like no no worries obviously it wound up on record because there is an audio recording of this and it's him saying the nixon campaign in 1968 and the nixon white house after that had two enemies the anti-war left and black people you understand what i'm saying we knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily we could disrupt those communities we could arrest their leaders raid their homes break up their meetings and vilify them night after night on the evening news did we know we were lying about the drugs of course we did this paragraph was actually also prefaced um, by him saying, and I, obviously I will paraphrase here, um, but basically he had a statement that was like, you know, it used to be that you could say, and then fully says like N-word, 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 N-word. And then he was like, but you can't say that anymore. So then we had to figure something else out. And then goes into this paragraph. So you have it, you have an actual like, government presidential administrator who is just openly spouting racial slurs and then going on to say this very profound statement which is we did this intentionally like throwing people in jail targeting black people was intentional and we knew we were lying because this is what we wanted i i i do remember watching that for the first time and the first time it even absolutely just blew my mind to to hear that um and and shame on me that it blew my mind you know um that i i was naive enough to 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 really have that be as impactful as it was in the ways in which it was um but i this is the stuff that gets covered up this is the stuff that doesn't get talked about um within society and when people are like oh republicans aren't racist i'm like they're literally the base of the new Republican Party is racism. Like, it is right there. There is a direct quote explaining it. And something that I found really interesting was Newt Gingrich is fully a part of this documentary. And I was very surprised by that. However, I appreciated 
how candid I guess he was in the things he was saying, but I don't know if he realized how horrible it made him look. Uh, I don't know, but at least in the in the beginning, like I don't, I, I Chandler's typing, so he's probably gonna look up to see if there's any response. You look that up and I'll, I'll keep going because his his main kind of like talking points came up next, which was that uh, we went from this kind of dog whistle politics, right, with the Nixon campaign to the Reagan era. Reagan is the one who actually started taking legislature measures to enforce a war on drugs. So now we went from kind of creating a from from what was more of like a a social i don't even know because it's not like people weren't affected by nixon's law and order and war on drugs they were um but it was it was being used more as like the excuse whereas now with reagan it was like no this is the now now we have like an actual cause i guess basically he put in this drug policy that was crazy because it also cut addiction programs, which is the opposite thing that should be happening. There were unfair minimums for drug-related offenses. Um, And again, these were directly race-related because you have two drugs, right? You have crack cocaine and cocaine. Cocaine as a, a, you know, just straight cocaine powder was considered like a rich person's drug and crack cocaine was considered a poor person's drug. And throughout all of this, what have we been doing? We've been intentionally forcing racial minorities into poverty and then introducing insane prison minimums or or punishment minimums for crack cocaine over normal, uh, you know, uncut, whatever, cocaine powder. The And and these minimums, they were, um, it was the 100 to 1 phenomenon, basically, in that for just five grams of crack cocaine, there was a minimum of a five-year federal prison sentence, while the distribution of 500 grams of powdered cocaine carried the same five-year mandatory minimum sentence. And so you can imagine that there wound up being a significantly higher, um, and that came from the ACLU, um, in case anybody was curious where that statistic came from. Uh, But there was a significantly higher incarceration rate of um, black individuals uh, than white individuals um, just due to that in and of itself. Because at this time, being black was equated with being poor, which was equated with heavy drugs. And that is what was being criminalized. It it now also became like a suburban versus an urban issue. And we get into things like like population distributions and migration of people um, and, and specifically like black people trying to get out of certain areas because of the not to, I don't know, I, the word that came to mind was like witch hunt, which I feel like is very accurate, honestly, um, but like towards those groups and these um, higher incarceration rates and they were being targeted. So with Reagan, we had all of that. And then after Reagan, we get Bill Clinton. 
And this is where Newt Gingrich comes in and has this, like I said, candid piece about how the Republican Party became the law and order party and we were seen as tough and whatever. And then and he was like, and the Democrats were seen as like weak. Uh, there, there were there were ads run basically of like, oh, uh, this this person is a convicted felon, blah 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 blah, and under Democratic policy, X Y Z, like nothing would happen to that person, whatever. And due to all of these scare tactics, tactics and everything, people were voting for what was considered the Law and Order Party, and and I really think that. Half of it was just blatant racism, and I think the other half was they manipulated the public into, you know, really fearing these groups of people. Newt Gingrich said that, um, you know, he was like, yeah, and then and then the the Democratic Party realized that they needed to become more centrist in order to compete with us, and they needed um, they needed to be tougher and match our stances on crime and on drugs in order to have a chance. And so Bill Clinton comes along and Bill Clinton is this suave, uh, you know, cool factor guy who adopts a very centrist stance and his uh, like identity basically becomes severe punishments on violent criminals along with mandatory minimum sentencing. And what he wound up doing was that prison became harder to get out of. Um, it, it really was Bill Clinton's policies that made it like like the idea of like life without parole or like not being able to to uh, appeal for uh, a parole or anything like that. I will say that he had at some point post presidency said that he regrets the um, laws that he put into place um, and the harshness of them. Um, that is something that he, you know, was open about. However, he still did it. And throughout this documentary, there is a um, like a, a, a meter, like a counter that shows you like in each segment of the of the documentary a new year pops up and it tells you how many incarcerated people are are exist within the US at that point in time and i i believe it was in a two or three year period um with bill clinton the amount of incarcerated people increased over 1 million i mean there's there's not even a word that accurately describes how unfathomable that increase in such a short period of time is from that we get privatized prisons um and so we also now get this idea of there is an incentive to have people in prison to have people in jail and we get this uh the the idea that the the quote was um punishment is profit you know we we are spoon-fed as in this society and and when i say that i mean american society that um prison is rehabilitation um you know we're supposed to be that that is the that is what we're always told is like oh our prison system is like a rehabilitation for criminals wrong absolutely so false nothing about our prison system does any sort of rehabilitating at all whatsoever and that's a frustrating thing to try to communicate to people that like just 
don't realize it. And it's like, no, they're helping reform crim- criminals to be citizens of society again. I'm like, no, our prison industrial complex is against that. They want labor. They want people. They have quotas they want to meet. They they want to repeat offenders. And that's, and that's a thing I'll dive into later with some of the research I've done. Repeat offenders are easy to get back into the prison system for longer and longer terms because they're repeat offenders and it's they they just want the bodies to do work for them they do not care about rehabilitation like that's why those services are like lacking or not even there and so these private prisons they have contracts with shareholders and states and basically like they make money off of people being behind bars um and so when you have these minimum sentencing laws that are put into place and you have these really, really high bails and you have intentionally forced certain communities into poverty so they can't achieve those or like pay those bails. And you have essentially criminalized just being black um, and therefore introduced, uh, well, not even introduced, but, but more emphasized um, racial profiling and things like that, you are basically stuck with you are in jail because you took a plea and so you're going to have a really long sentence or you're in jail because you're waiting for some glimpse of hope that you're going to be proven innocent. But either way, you're in jail and that that you there is it's it is it is racial minorities. And this, this movie does heavily focus on, um, black individuals, but they they, they do bring up, um, Hispanic and, and, uh, Latino individuals as well a few times throughout the film and, and, and being in the, in the same, in the same boat. Um, just, just being a, a minority race, um, became targeted or, or was, was now, <sighs> was now in, in the new Jim Crow targeted because like we established. I, I had some more introspection on, this is also a repeat viewing of this movie for me as well. I had a new introspection in my own life of like the, the media that was pushed onto me growing up as a child, which is weird, especially during like Bush era. Cause I grew up during Bush era, like George W. Bush. So it's the war on terror and stuff like that. So it's like a new form of racism against, you know, people from the Middle East, no matter what faith they follow and stuff like that. And there, there's definitely in that time period as well, like a, a huge, a larger emphasis on the issues at the border, the Mexico, the uh, Mexico U.S. border. Like that was a big thing as growing up for myself too. That wasn't like a huge, I mean, clearly it's, it stems from, you know, Nixon, Reagan era war on drugs a little bit because they're talking about how like it's coming from South America. The drugs are you know, the cartels and the drug smuggling. And we have to worry about that. Yeah, I mean, growing up in Arizona in, you know, two hours, maybe from the Mexico border, like that was a, that was a very thing that on my end, like just watching the local news, the the microaggressions and the, you know, kind of just internalized, but like diluted racism that would get spouted all the time on on the news that people watch every single day regarding 
the the new war on drugs, like you were saying, coming over the border. Yeah. And so I had this memory like reawakened for me. It was a middle school geography class that I was in. And I had a I, I appreciate this teacher. I don't quite remember his name right now, but he was amazing in that he he treated us as like mature enough people growing intellectually like not as children more or less like these these kids are smart they're gonna learn like these middle school years are some of the most formidable years like we can't just and he's he gave us critical things about like the news and politics of the time because it was like definitely like end of bush era into obama so like that was like this whole that was a huge like presidential campaign cycle that was enormous of like who's it gonna because the big mccain obama race and everything i remember specifically he brought in some political cartoons of stuff and it was i think it was like nevada or maybe even arizona pushed these new laws allowing you and this documentary touches on it allowing officers to pull anyone over if they suspect that they've crossed the border and they're illegal immigrants of any kind. And so this political cartoon went off of that. And I will never forget this quote for the rest of my life. It's always something that's like in the back of my head. And it's, if they're yellow, maybe mellow. If they're brown, pat them down. And I'm like, that was just in the newspaper. Jesus. Right? And it's just crazy. But like, I'm not also surprised now as someone who's learned from seeing that at such a young age of like of course the media did that they've been doing that for like a century like and they're they're just gonna try and be more clever and see what they can get away with it's harder to get away with a lot more now but like honestly i feel like there's whole news court like whole corners of the news media of the internet that freely spew bullshit and like i think of people who who spawned their newfound quote-unquote journalism of being super islamophobic because of you know the war on terror that bush enacted during his presidency and how a lot of that is yeah bad journalism there in that sense right this whole movie is about the the prison industrial complex and but how we how we got here. And, you know, when we talk about institutionalized racism, this is, this is literally (laughs) exactly what, what that is. And I think one of the, one of the things that I always just found like really, really eye-opening, which again, this isn't stuff that's not accessible to us. It's just like, if you don't know to look for it, it's not going to be shown to you because it's trying to be covered up. But that's if you look at what the um, old runaway slave patrol badges looked like, uh, they are police badges. They are modern day. They like side by side. They are the exact same thing. Like we just it's just things we don't talk about. And it's like, OK, yeah, we made slavery illegal. So with the exception of criminals. So then we just made all of the people who were slaves criminals so that they could just be slaves again i love how you touched on that because that's like a i saw i think it's during covid john oliver did a whole special about the origins of the police and it's like they were before they were police officers they were 
uh, slave catchers. Like they just went to go catch escaped slaves and bring them back to the slave owners for, you know, probably punishment or death. Yes. Yes. You know, I, I mentioned that that there's footage of Donald Trump in this uh, in this documentary as well. It, and and really what that footage was, was emphasizing just this idea of the way that politicians are able to generate fear of crime and, and falsely and and how easy it is um, that that Republican candidates, honestly, um, were able to have this law and order. And the thing is, Trump at multiple rallies talks about bringing back law and order. And so it was kind of drawing a direct line between, you know, how we not necessarily started, but like had the kind of exponential jump with Nixon versus where we are back to literally right now. And even Newt Gingrich had um, ha- had the quote uh, about all of this stuff saying, quote, it was an enormous burden in the black community. So, and it, so like, that's not, I mean, that's not 1968. That's, that's Newt Gingrich. Like he's, he's a political figure today. Like, and the fact that, that he even out loud, again, not in as blatant words as that John fellow, uh, but it says like, oh yes, do we know we were lying? Yes. Here's how I know we're lying. I know it was a burden to the black community. I will I will end my segment with a few things here. Uh, just some some final statistics is that currently black men make about 6.5% of the US population, but they make up 40.40.2% of the US prison population. Obviously, there is a there's there's a problem there, obviously. And one in 3 Black men are expected to go to prison in their lifetime, and only one in 17 white men are expected to go to prison in their lifetime. Angela Davis was also part of this documentary, but she had the quote that really just sums up what the, the point of this entire thing is, which is, quote, the prison industrial complex relies historically on the inheritances of slavery. That is that is it in a nutshell is is this is modern day slavery. The society we are living in does not view it that way because it has been carefully crafted by evil individuals to not be viewed that way. Yeah, I, I'm going to just pull out some more just conversational stuff to talk because we can go on forever about this movie, but I, I'm just going to point out some stuff that I think is really good conversations to have further. So this came out in 2016, of course. Since 2016, because 2016 had a peak of like 2.3 million prisoners, I believe is what the documentary had as a statistic, which is outrageously crazy, outrageously crazy. So I've I've learned how to find the census for prisons. It's through the uh, Department of Justice. You can go through it. So you can find it through... um, the Bureau of Justice Statistics.gov. So BJS.OJP.gov. You can find all statistics and information because they have to report on things now because that's been a big thing. So bear in mind, this census, though, is only of state and federal prisons, does not include locals, doesn't include people who haven't been sentenced 
doesn't include uh, deportation centers, doesn't include juvenile centers. Like we're missing a good like third. Um, so, and this is end of 2022, 2023 from what I could find has not come out yet, but I did find uh, another site that says they, they have like mid 2023 statistics as well um, because they only do this year end. So, so at the end of 2022, uh, just over 1.2 million persons were in state or federal prisons. It has been interesting since 2016 that there has been a start of a decline of how many people have been incarcerated. But in the last year alone, we've had a what, according to this, a a growth of about two and a half percent in state and federal prisons, which is the first time in, I believe they said like four years, they've had a growth in people in prison. So it's it's very interesting that but like we also have to take in consideration current world affairs because you know we're having a lot of the january 6 uh sentencings that have been going on because of the 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 riot the attack on the capitol with the you know literal thousands of people there yeah let's just call it what it is the literal terrorist attack that happened at the u.s capitol there's just never a good i've never liked any of the news media names for it because it's always been like an agenda of verbiage. So like I'm waiting until we get enough distance from it so we can actually have a fucking name for it. But it's like the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Like I, to me, without diving into it further, that was an attack on democracy. Like they were literally stopping democracy. Absolutely. We are witnessing the decline of the US in real time. And it's horrifying. And honestly, if this is where we started anyway, what decline really is there? We just honestly never went up, if we're being honest. Fair. So uh, from this article, it's from the Prison Policy Initiative, prisonpolicy.org, to find a bunch of stuff there. Really good, well-worked like stuff. Really good people finding information, writing statistics and stuff, and putting it all together. From what they found from, I want to say this is like mid-2023 statistic-wise, it's about 1.9 million people currently in some sort of state of arrested in prison in jail and it's got a beautiful breakdown um i highly recommend it cuz it like dives into of like roughly those who are for violent crimes property drug public orders not convicted convicted gives the number for immigration detention centers territorial prisons youth prisons cuz youth is juvenile centers and stuff like that like people forget like this documentary touches on it but like young people have also been targeted like people under the age of 18 and like this documentary talks about in the 90s with the central park five well and the stand your ground um laws as well and and trayvon martin with george zimmerman and all of that like it also uh, the fact that even after the Central Park Five were found innocent, um, everybody should absolutely go read where Donald Trump said that he didn't care that they were found innocent and that they should still uh, serve life in prison because um, he's horrible. Uh, and that's putting it lightly. It's my podcast. I can say what I want. Um, <laughs> and I yeah. I do not give a fuck. I <laughs> like. Well, I'll, I'll fight you in the comments. Put it in the comments. Yeah. <laughs> Get our ratings up. Thanks. I do want to acknowledge like states 
have been better of rewriting their laws that took advantage of this constitutional loophole. Because this loophole was only taken advantage of because the states made new laws. Like That is the key here. It's not the federal government making laws, it's the states. There was a, a very specific appeal throughout all of this to the white South. And that was, that was, you know, and that's not to say like that this doesn't exist in places like New York. You know what I mean? I, I think there's a big misconception. Everyone's like, oh, the South is so racist. I've been to some incredibly fucked up places all over the country, not just the South. But this, this really started as a, a white Southern states rights endeavor. So like since 2016, especially many states have done state constitutional amendments to taking advantage of the loophole. I I know I'm from Colorado, so I know Colorado has done a big push and rewrote that law because it literally gave them the right to use free labor, which you know, it's code for slavery in law. Like that's the key there. If you see anything talking about free labor from incarcerated people, that's just code for slavery. And I think people miss that in legal jargon. And like, that's a thing I fight a lot because being a Colorado voter, we get to decide on a lot of like propositions and stuff that come into state law compared to some other states that don't get that because it's usually just the people elected in the state Congress that do that without public participation. I try to inform people to read your laws, be critical of them, especially when it's like new proposed, if you have the right to say anything in them. And then like just try to stay informed about changes around you. I know right now we've been in a huge push of abortion rights right now. And that's that's I think we're in a big swing right now of how that is going to you know, influence politics in the next 10 years. I mean, a lot, I would say, is. I think we're at a unique place right now where we might start seeing a huge increase in voter participation because I don't know if you know this, but the U.S. has some of the shittiest voter participation compared to other democracies around the world. I did know that, actually. But it's also because we make it incredibly difficult, which also goes back to intentionally trying to fuck over minority groups. I mean, a lot of states have been trying to fix that because it shouldn't just be one goddamn day of the year where it's not even a goddamn holiday. Like what? And people wind up waiting for 10 hours just to place a vote and they can't do that because you have to go to work. Yeah, voter suppression is a big thing. And I'm glad we also talked about that too. There was so much more in this movie too that I, I feel I'm like, I'm, I'm like thinking about as we've been talking so it's one of those things where it's just please watch it like please watch it they're like it's great that you're listening to us talk about it but also like do your due diligence and go watch this movie and then do further research yeah it's it's so easy to jump off from this movie to find more you just gotta just know what to look for and like i've given a couple resources you can go further i've gone further i'm just not bringing it all up i'm just bringing some of the stuff that's like really easy accessible in comparison to some of the other stuff because it's also like no one talks about this but like academia is also gatekeeping of information and it's frustrating because it's like universities have a plethora of information that's accessible when you're part of the university like it's not public publicly accessible when like it should and and it's a frustration of the american education system 
little conspiracy theory, but like it's 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 grounded a little bit in in evidence of just like it's clearly like they don't want people to get too educated because the government at the end of the day wants things to stay the same. The government does not want to change. It's the path of least resistance for them because the government as as an idea function, not necessarily the people who are elected into positions in the government, but the the idea of government is to not change and to tell the people what to do. Right? That is that is the form of it. And it's us as citizens to be critical of our government. It should always be that way. I'm not saying like all governments are corrupt or anything. It's for, for the, the people. people. Yes. For the people. Like the government should be serving the people. So we need to take our government back, but not in a fucking January 6th way. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, I just want to be clear. And and you can do that through civic engagement. Like the majority of us will do it through civic engagement, right? Like not many of us are revolutionaries and that's okay. I'm not a revolutionary. I just get involved civically and that's that is my duty and I just try to make sure people get access to information and just learn. My big thing's learning. Educate yourself. Well, not to continue the, the fucking bummer that is all of this, but uh, Chandler, why don't you tell us about your film? Yeah, so I, I decided not to do another documentary because I felt like that would have been a lot of info dumping. So I chose this 1997 film, Miss Evers Boys, directed by Joseph Sargent. Um, it's got Alfre Woodard, Lawrence Fishburne, Joe Morton, Ozzie Davis, like great great cast oh yeah phenomenal yeah this is like an hbo television movie at the time when it came out so like didn't come out theatrically came out on television which is sad it deserved to be it makes sense budget though big motion picture oh yeah i mean totally yeah i'm yes it should it should have been it should have gotten big motion picture praise and stuff but it did get a lot of good television praise so like i guess it reached enough people for an audience so i'm glad like television was that access for people for this. But this movie is centered around the, not I would argue, not so well-known nowadays, but the real historical events of the Tuskegee experiment is what it's coined as, where between 1932 and 1972, black men who had syphilis were lied to about having syphilis and were studied about the effects of syphilis long term, even though it was a completely unnecessary study. And we will get into that. This movie particularly is based on the 1992 play by David Felshu, which is very interesting that it's adapted from a play inspired by these real events. So it's very much a dramatization, but has real stories connected to it like good theater does i think i think the first thing right is like when you hear like oh uh, this is a very trivial way of putting this but like a science experiment or like a science study you're like okay yeah like a a few years this was a 40 year this was this was a 40 year thing four zero that's the thing that messed me up the most and like i i had had some like previous knowledge of of this um particular study um but i did not i did not have a, a 
a concept of just how just how fucked up it all was. I think the movie does a good job of explaining why in some understanding it went on for so long because of racial and economic reasons because it's it's this really poor town of Macon County in Alabama. So the premise is it's 1932. It's the it's the 1930s and Washington DC is sending out a specialist because they want to study the effects of syphilis because they're trying to find a cure. There's no cure for syphilis at this time. So they're just trying to find a cure for it and so they're like there there becomes a realization because the local doctor who is black. So so this county is very like African American driven. So there's a lot of you know, people fighting for their way of through education and trying to be recognized as people of color who can be educated and do the same things white people can do. And that's a big narrative point in this movie a lot because it, it it's a historical thing of black people are inferior. They they can't like it's it's a common thing in like institutional education through these years as well of they're just not never going to be smart as smart as us because their skin color is different, which is like illogical. And and like literally there's you can find these things in like some of the big universities, like historically of like whole lectures going on trying to make up more bullshit about how people are co- people of color are inferior and they try to make anatomy like bullshit theories and stuff like that it's 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 gross and crazy so yeah so it's macon county alabama and there's been like a huge outbreak of syphilis and so it's it's got the eyes of the federal government because it's like a huge outbreak and they want to try and figure out how to control it and why it's so bad and it's like if you look in this movie man living conditions aren't great for these people because no one cares about them. They're fending for themselves. Like the state doesn't care about them. It's Alabama in the thirties. Of course. Again, birth of a nation came out 17 years prior, which is not actually that long in terms of talking about time. Yeah. And so this is also post world war one, right? We're also like hitting the great depression almost at this point as well. There's a lot of, circumstantial stuff going on that we as the viewer have as outside knowledge watching this of understanding what these people are like choosing to do so this this specialist this white doctor from dc comes down because he's got government money to start a study to figure out treatments for syphilis and it's like all these like random because they don't have a cure yet like penicillin hasn't really been the cure yet to you know cure people of of syphilis because penicillin only became really big during World War II, especially when people enlisted. With government funding support, they start offering free health care to all these people, to, to black men who have contracted syphilis because the point of the study is to, to understand, initially, to try to understand the side effects of syphilis while trying to find a cure, cure for it. But sadly, like six months passed, I believe, and they've run out of funding. The Great Depression's hit. And the the huge benefactor from Chicago that was supplying money for this through grants no longer has the money to supply the experiment ongoing. And so they're like, 
having to cut back and start letting people go. I mean, the movie mainly follows this nurse, Eunice Evers, and it's kind of like her journey because um, she is one of the people who spoke uh, in the uh, Senate hearing when this was whistleblown in the 70s because she was she was there from the start to the end. Like she was caring for these men this whole time and she saw everything and been through it all. So like I can't imagine the inner turmoil she's had. And we and we do see it beautifully portrayed by Alfrey Woodard. She does a great job. So they cut back and we have like an unknown time of not being able to treat these men super well with the with their side effects. And uh, Dr. Douglas, um, he is the white doctor who came from D.C. He ends up going back out to D.C. with Dr. Sam Brodus. Dr. Sam Brodus is the resident doctor of the town, and he is African-American. And they end up getting support from congressmen as a federal government because they want to know the long-term effects of syphilis on black people. I think this movie does a good job of trying to portray it in a that they have bad intent without making it seem like they have bad intent. It's it's very odd. It's it's trying to figure out if they want to be nefarious with it. Like I'm always in this mindset of like taking advantage of people. What what is the end game? Like what are you hoping to do with this information? Even though at this time, which is even brought up with these congressmen. The study has already been done in in like Denmark or something like that. On and they're like, but that was a group of white people. You want to see if it's different to black people. Yeah, and literally, it, this was to see if black people re- how how black people reacted to syphilis in relation to white people. Which I, I to me, there's like more sinister things underlying that. Like, because it's like, okay, you get your answer that they react the same. Now what? Like, yeah. And I think it started a lot of, or this, I wouldn't say start because it's probably always been there. Like this, this reinforced this idea that black people genetically have some sort of difference that needs to be exploited or taken advantage of because the, the white race needs to be the only pure race to exist at the end of the day. And it's very odd and it's very weird. It's all othering. It's all othering. It's us and them. And it's, it, that's such a dangerous, that's such a dangerous ideology. So they end up getting federal government support, but they can't cure them. Like they, they're explicitly told that like, you need the study to go until they die. Which is just so, it's so evil. It's so dark and evil, especially when like you've, you found a cure and like clearly it's all the same symptoms for like 10 years after you found the cure to like, why keep going with the experiment at this point? And and the reason why like these people like Nurse Evers, Nurse Evers struggles, like she, she gets hired back, but she learns of like the real intent and she doesn't want to like be part of that. But then it's like, these men do get free healthcare. This this town gets healthcare and like supported to take care of these people. It's also like trying to prove the white man wrong that people of color can be as smart intellectually and 
be in these positions of of reverence of being a doctor being a nurse like being equal to their white counterparts with the same job like there is a lot of that mentality going on as well and so like you see these inner struggles of like justifying doing this evil thing because these evil people want you to do it with doing the right thing and and we just we we sadly see them commit to doing this until it was whistleblown in 1972 and we see the the effects of relationships between people like Willie Willie is a character in this who is a dancer a, just a stellar dancer part of like a local part of a gr- group of buddies that do music and dancing and he loves dancing and he wants to go to New York to to a specific club to go see some of the greats who dancers and like jazz scat scat men of the time and everything and it's just like you have so much hope for this guy but then you see him like start to like become a cripple you know he he's he starts getting all these joint pains he can't dance anymore he has difficulty even walking because the long-term effects of syphilis is like degrading the joints but then like others are like literally going insane like one one guy he starts looking for alternative medicine but like also it's mental health problems he has that's being unrecognized at this time and he's just he kills himself by it poisoning himself thinking it's going to be medicine and it's 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 a tragic scene to sit through and watch because he's just in so much pain and he's just trying to find some sort of solace and he's speaking to spirits to try to help him and he ends up killing himself by accident even though it's like possibility that Evers might have also attributed to his death because once they figure find out that penicillin is a cure for it there is hesitation that penicillin when used on someone who's contracted syphilis for a longer period of time can cause death but it's a rare case like keep in mind it is a rare case so there is a hesitation which is used against nurse evers in giving these men penicillin and going rogue on her own because of the danger like a lot of dangling danger is set as roadblocks in this movie for these people. There, there was, there was, this was a tough watch. I also am just somebody, I just feel things like very deeply. Like I might've mentioned this on the podcast before. I might not have. I fully like when I watched the movie Wally cried when the cockroach got left on earth by himself. Like, so take something that, stupid uh and then like that's my emotional reaction like watching something like this i have a very very difficult time i think like i think it's different to like watching this movie with pre-existing knowledge versus you know watching it as like oh this is a a new concept like it's still going to be a very heavy movie but you're kind of just along for the ride that the movie has crafted and that's it rather than 
being on the ride and knowing where the ride is going and where the ride has been and like all all of that and so like one of the scenes that stuck out to me was when um dr douglas was like talking to all of the guys about like why they were there like why they were participating in the study and he's talking like a doctor like you know what i mean like he's he he was using like a lot of elevated language and and things like that and like not like we are in 1930 rural alabama like to see like not really the understanding of what he just said um and so for for miss evers i guess technically uh to regurgitate what he said but in a way that was like understandable to this group just uh, i think hit really hard in terms of a like bedside manner like i cannot tell you how many times i have uh appreciated my nurse more than my doctor like just in the way that they are able to like interact with their patients but the the part about that scene that i was like oof like the knife was already in let's twist it a little more was um he like pulls her aside after and like says you know thank you like i know i'm a good doctor but i'm not like great with people or like he says or like i'm 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 a good medical doctor but i'm not a good people doctor is what he says and she responds by saying you're helping people you're a good people doctor and that was rough because it's like you're not helping people like we're about to let i think it was out of the number was like out of 400 and something like you let almost 300 of them die like knowing that a a a cure had been developed for for this thing just because it wanted we wanted to monitor and see how black people reacted like i just yeah and I, I think also something that was interesting is I feel like this particular study has actually been a little bit more popular in society's eye recently um, because I do I am chronically online, which is a problem. Um, but I it, it leads me to some very interesting, you know, um, threads and things that I might not otherwise be exposed to just because of the company that I keep. There was a very large population of black men who refused to get the vaccine for COVID and citing this study as one of those reasons. I obviously have personal opinions um, about (laughs) vaccinations and, and such and COVID. However, like I the 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 trauma from something like this and the and the fact that i fully do believe in generational trauma and those those that is real that exists like ancestral trauma that exists that's real yeah i mean the same thing with like this the smallpox blankets right like with the indigenous peoples like we have not created especially like this was a government funded thing the government has not created a safe environment for uh minority groups especially within medical fields and and medical communities 
And and I, I feel like I was watching this and just I had all of these other things running through my head, you know, as I was watching it of like um, the the death rate of of um, pregnant black women because they're not taken seriously when they when they bring things up and, and stuff like that. And just like everything just circles back to stuff like this, where it's like, again, a, a group of white people in power intentionally caused harm. I don't I, I feel so dumb saying like vibe, but like that notion that whatever just throughout this entire film and then having, you know, obviously she, she gets up to speed, Eunice does, but uh, like the, the trust that is there inherently and how it just is a good movie to kind of say, don't, you shouldn't have that inherent trust. You know what I mean? Like, especially as, um, somebody who belongs to a minority population. A lot of the made-up excuse, which is very historical, not now, is is bad blood. Is these people have bad blood, and that's what it's like reduced to. And it's been like a bad blood has been a common thing in the African American community for like a, for centuries now, for for multitude of bullshit reasons of why they they are you know, medically impacted the way they are. And it's used to other them further. You know, it's 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 an evil notion. One of the other beautiful plot points through this movie is is this kind of like love plot point because you need something human in this to kind of get you through the tragedy. And it's this relationship that spawns between Evers and Caleb Humphreys. And this is Lawrence Fishburne. Caleb is definitely this like character who he dropped out of school because he he and uh, Eunice were in class together, but he dropped out of school randomly, even though he was like a smart kid, is because his I believe his brother was killed uh, from a lynching is the story, and so he has to take his place for the family income uh, because he was like he picked cotton I believe or something like that. And like we see that like Caleb is a smart, smart man who hasn't had he who's lost, who's lost his, you know, institutional education opportunity. He has an immediate distrust of the government, which is very grounded of people, uh, especially people of color during this time, because it's, you know, we're not too far from reconstruction, honestly, to like have that generational trauma that they're lingering it's like a generation away at this point honestly maybe two and so he has this immediate distrust when it's like being offered for treatment for syphilis but like he asks questions he gets reading materials like Eunice gives him books on syphilis gives him access to information and he reads it and he he learns to understand what it says. And so he's he's someone who clearly has the ability but is never given the opportunities. And it's a very common story in, in these kind of communities. When World War II happens, he enlists. And this is where he finds out that like penicillin cured him. And so he tries to help other people, especially his friend Willie, who is struggling to dance now. Like this is the point where he's like struggling to dance and 
Willie gets, you know, dissuaded away because Evers is stuck with the information like this could kill Willie, you know, because it could have an adverse effect. Caleb goes off to war and disappears. And there's this like frustration in that relationship there that was growing so beautifully. But Eunice has had to make the terrible choice that she's committed to of continuing this experiment and not helping. And and a lot of ethical questions come into place about when do we cross the line? Because there's no there's no rules for for these studies, for these medical studies at this point of what's humane and not, which is really sad. Even so, like the thing that was devastating was that it it wasn't it like that relationship got strained when he came back too, but also the whole part where like all of those people who were part of this study were on hospital lists saying, do not receive treatment because they're a part of this study. So like, even though now they were like, Caleb figured out like, oh, they could be cured because they've opted into this study where they were kind of told they were going to be treated. They're actually not getting treated at all. And they will never get treated because they like became a part of this. And that was just that part that was like, how do you feel anything other than hopeless? And so this movie, it just kind of goes through chronologically through all of this uh, narrative and it it ends back where it started because this movie starts and kind of cuts back to the, the Senate hearing on this with Eunice giving her testimony. Uh, And it ends kind of back in that courtroom with like, these beautiful final monologues from uh, Eunice Evers talking about why she did what she did, why why everyone chose to do what they do, because the racist institution of the government and like points a finger back at the senators themselves. It's like you all knew this was ongoing and you're currently just trying to find someone to blame. You're trying to find your scapegoat. In reality, it's you, you people in power that we say are our elected officials of the government knew this was going on because this went on for 40 years. Like You knew this was going on and you choose not to acknowledge it until it was whistleblown by a reporter. That like that's the that was the biggest like shaking thing there of just like, yeah, she's right. Like, who? what is it? Why why is it all down to the people who are stuck with the difficult in the moment decisions of trying to help their community and like their their entire representation of their race? Why why not the government who asked for this experiment? Like why wasn't it checked on? Why wasn't it been like, oh maybe we should stop this? I, I guarantee it got forgotten, honestly. Which is the crazy thing because fucking bureaucracy and like lots of things happen and get forgotten and money gets lost anyways in the government because we spend trillions of dollars just on the fucking military as is. And so it's, I think it's a strong ending, even though it's sad ending to the movie, but it's a strong ending of, you know, flipping the narrative of what it, we thought we were sucked into of like focusing on these people's personally affected and their emotional journey through it all. I have, I did some d- deep digging into like the real life facts that I can dive into as well. So this 
this experiment, the study um, conducted by the by uh, by these by a local doctor and an outside doctor uh, with Nurse Evers. Like Nurse Evers is a real person. The these doc the doctors in the movie aren't the same doctors. Um, they they made up those characters, understandably. I mean, I don't think it matter, matters too much now because I believe they're all kind of just dead. But it was Dr. Uh, Raymond A. Uh, Vonderlair, Dr. Eugene Dibble. Um, and they cycled through doctors because this was a 40-year experiment. So you can understand like some of these doctors like were fed up and left. Eunice Evers, now Eunice Rivers, because she married and took the last name Rivers, was there the whole time, though, because that was her community. She lived there. She was part of that community, and she was a nurse. So she she felt she had the the duty to stay there and try to comfort these men to the end of their life, try to make their lives as comfortable as possible, knowing that the heinous crime that this experiment is committing on them as people. So uh, it was funded by... Uh, both the United States Public Health System as well as the Centers for Disease Control. So the CDC supported this. Yep, on nearly 400 African-American men with syphilis. Uh, None of the men were informed of the nature of the experiment. Like some found out they had syphilis, but not informed that it was to monitor their symptoms to their death. Um, And so therefore more than 100 died due to syphilis or health health conditions caused by syphilis. So they, they were promised of free health care, uh, but were never told of their diagnosis of syphilis. And so the PHS, the public health system, disguised placebos, ineffective methods, and diagnostic procedures as treatment for their quote, quote unquote, bad blood, which is a coin they did term and became popular sense for these terrible studies it was only supposed to last for six months and of course got extended to 40 years that we now know as it does you know probably could have gone on longer if you know wasn't you know whistleblown and found out but yeah so by 1947 it was proven penicillin could be used as a cure for syphilis and this is like something you can get almost over the counter now if you you have any of these illnesses. Fun fact, my mom's allergic to penicillin. I'm also allergic to penicillin. Are you? Yeah. Wow. Fun facts. But yeah, so this 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 experiment was kept secret until it was leaked to the press in 1972 uh, by a doctor there. I mean, multiple times, doctors who knew young doctors who joined the experiment because, you know, they're probably hired by the, I believe, mostly hired by the government as government doctors and go went to go fill in positions and stuff, wanted to report this. Like, there's many accounts, especially through, like, the, the 60s and to seven, 1972, like, end of the, end of the 60s of, like, the, th- this is not okay. Like, this is against all of my, you know, oaths of being a doctor like we this no like this needs to stop now and they were suppressed or stopped from doing so until it eventually did get leaked out to the press and so by that point 20 uh statistics here 28 people had died 
by syphilis, 100 from complications related to syphilis, 40 of the patient's wives were infected with syphilis, and 19 children were born with a congenital syphilis, which is like crazy the the further impact this experiment caused. Like playing shitty devil's advocate here, but like they thought they were trying to figure out the outbreak of syphilis when it's just like they just caused more of a problem and and honestly learned nothing from it because nothing new was learned from this experiment. Like all the information had already been found out from a previous study when there wasn't a cure for syphilis. When this got whistleblown, it this led to the Belmont report and therefore led to the formation of the Office for Human Research Projects in creating laws and regulations for protections of human human test subjects and studies. Of course, it had these big Senate hearings, and honestly, from the depiction of this movie, you could kind of see how they went as you know most of Senate hearings kind of go nowadays. Uh, I think about, I recently watched the movie, I think it was Dumb Money, which is about the, the GameStop stocks and stuff like that, as a dramatization of it. And so like the end of the movie has that big congressional hearing thing over Zoom, essentially, yeah. or whatever. And it was cool. just like Great. pulling real <laughs> clips from like real Congress people of that. I'm like, how pointless some of these hearings are. And then I think even earlier to like, was it like 2014 when Mark Zuckerberg went into a Congress hearing over Facebook leak stuff and I like how pointless that hearing was as well. I'm like, and even recently TikTok, you know, TikTok had that big congressional hearing and how pointless that was. So you can, yeah, you can kind of see how, how our bureaucratic process can sometimes be pointless in trying to understand things in, in society that, you know, people are trying to make laws on a big thing. uh, Bill Clinton uh, made a formal apology in 1997, quote unquote, on behalf of the United States to the victims, which is interesting. That was part of Bill Clinton's presidency, even though, was, you know, also he was running off of a war on drugs. War on black people. And that's like, that's kind of all the big points of this. It's it's crazy how much this affected people. Um, the distrust in the health system, especially the government in its relationship with the health system. So like it's I I never had the the connection until watching this movie of the of the fear of information from the CDC and stuff with COVID in relation to the COVID pandemic and everything. So like I can see that from the people who have had a closer effect from this. You know, especially people of color, I can see that now. I can understand that a little better. Uh, but it's also just bewildering that, like, there is a distrust there that I never thought would be there fully. You know, and it's just sad because you're like, this, these are health organizations that are supposed to think for the better health and taking care of people. It's supposed to think about how to keep them alive. You know, and it's just like they do terrible things, though. Uh, very cool thing, though, this movie did get nominated for 12 Emmys, which is crazy in 1992. It won five of them, including Outstanding Television Movie and the President's Award. So it's the the award the president gives out for Outstanding Television Project. One thing that I looked up 
um, since we <laughs> say with an audio perspective, but don't always talk about uh, audio. The the composer for this film is uh, Charles Bernstein, and he's actually like I did not realize like how much of his stuff that I am actually familiar with. So some things that people might uh, know is he was um, the composer for Cujo. Um, that was one of his his big ones. And also, uh, documentary-wise, if I don't know if you've seen it, Maya Lin, A Strong, Clear Vision. Yeah, um, which if, if, if you haven't, listeners, um, it is about the designer of the Vietnam Memorial. and Vietnam War Memorial, I should say. Um, and so he did the music for that as well, which I thought was really cool. Um, he did A Nightmare on Elm Street. As well, Quentin Tarantino is a big fan uh, and ha- included music from Bernstein and some of his stuff, including Kill Bill Volume One and Inglorious Bastards. And then, uh, funny enough, uh, his stuff has gotten sampled for a bunch of like rap stuff. Um, both Logic or all, all three, uh, Logic, Drake, and Twenty One Savage um, have all sampled. Um, some of Bernstein's music. Nice. Oh, that's very cool. That is very cool. I love that. Yeah, we we gotta focus more on that audio lens a bit more. There's lots to talk about. I feel like we have good conversations. There's so much. Because you know, understanding a work matters a lot too, and the artistic intent. Absolutely. But yeah, I guess that's gonna do it for this episode. I mean, we could definitely talk more about all of this probably in the future we will anyways it'll just be a continuous conversation when we talk more of this especially i think maybe even this month maybe maybe because february is a long one this year yeah oh yeah a little leap year one whole extra day <laughs> next up is more breaking bad oh yeah so exciting getting into it we're almost done with this season dude that's crazy i know so yeah we're going through episodes eight nine and ten great trio of episodes i'm excited i'm very excited i'm pumped this has been resident reels uh please like subscribe comment rate us all podcasting platforms and everything like that yell at us if we got something wrong or we didn't include something or you didn't like something that we said or you know don't that's cool too we're here for all the criticism comments and everything always always open But yeah, I've been Chandler. And I've been Adam. We'll see you next time. Cheers.